Well, the children are about to leave, and we are going to stay and turn and open our Bibles to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles is not a book we go to a lot, so we give you time to find that. And as you find these 2 Chronicles, land in chapter 20, we're going to talk about the first 22 verses and read that story about Jehoshaphat here after a while. But before we read, I entertain you with a question. The question is this, and maybe it's questions. Do you ever feel like a warrior or a soldier fighting daily battles in your life? And it's highly likely you do, because a lot of us face battles nearly every day of our life, if not for sure every day of our life. And I got one to share with you, and I probably used the bus illustration a little too much, but it just presents so many illustrations worthy to share. So I have yet another. Because last Thursday and Friday, we were trucking along, we were taking kids home in the afternoon. The kids are always more rowdy in the afternoon than the morning. I love to drive in the morning because the kids are still half asleep. I don't have hardly any problems at all in the morning. But the afternoon, boy, they're jacked up. They've been quiet all day, and their teachers make them be quiet, and they are not so quiet on the bus, especially driving home on any particular day. But last Thursday and Friday, I really kind of come to an end of it. I mean, I have been dealing with it for a while. And so I gave the kids, especially the ones in the front, the younger ones, their official last warning. I've been warning them and warning them about getting up and moving from one seat to the other. And in general, just being loud and annoying and rude and distracting. I mean, it's distracting to me. I'm trying to watch the road, but I always look up in the mirror to look back to see what they're doing. So I gave them their official last warning. And it seemed to work for a while. But it didn't seem to phase one particular sixth grader, a young man in which I have had previous behavior issues with before. We're going to call him George. And it's safe to call him George because I have no boy named George on the bus. So for today, his name is George. But last Thursday, I had enough of George. So I stopped the bus. He likes to sit, because he's in middle school, he gets to sit further back in the bus. And he's about two-thirds of the way back. And he's sitting there, and all of a sudden I just hear him, and I hear other kids complaining. I stopped the bus, not even far from the school, and I said, George, I need you to move to the front. He moved about three rows forward. I said, no, further to the front, a couple more rows. I said, I need you to come all the way here in row number two and sit here so I can see you. So he reluctantly came to row number two and sat there for a while. And, I mean, he's not a bad kid, really, but he just won't do right. I mean, he I don't know what it is about him. He's constantly rude. He's loud. He's obnoxious. I had kids on the bus complaining even that he was being bullying them. So I had to do something about it. So I gave him a, a write-up, which is a disciplinary report that our bus drivers can do for kids who sometimes need to have some corrective behavior. And I give it to uh, the transportation director secretary. She gives it to the school. But the bad thing about the write-up or disciplinary report is that the schools don't always act upon it very quickly, and sometimes it don't get the attention it deserves. So I knew that even after I did that, it would be likely that he'd get back on the bus and repeat that behavior I've seen before. And it was likely I was going to fight that battle many different times because I've had those battles with George previously. And honestly, it begins to take its toll. 
I get stressed out about it at times. It probably has increased my blood pressure a time or two. Knowing especially that I was going to probably fight that battle with George at least another day. But I got off the bus that afternoon, and I began to drive home, and I heard the song, The Battle Belongs, by Phil Wickham. And it began to speak to me. I got thinking, you know, Lord, that is timely. Because I'm fighting this battle all the time with these kids. That battle don't even really belong to me. It's yours. I can give it to you, and you'll take it. So I realized the song reminded me of the battle belongs to the Lord. And so I just had a simple little prayer. I, I said, Lord, just fight this battle for me. Actually, let me be loving on this kid. And Lord, just change his behavior. A simple little prayer. Friday afternoon, as I'm anticipating again, I hand it to the Lord. But know how we always take it back. I hand it to him. Friday afternoon, I'm thinking, okay, here comes George back on this bus. A Friday afternoon, I get a notice, notification from the school transportation director that George is not going to be on the bus any longer in the afternoons. He'll ride in the morning, but he's going to go home early every day. A special situation has come up where he'll go home earlier in the day, and I won't have George on the bus any afternoon the rest of the school year. Come on, help me celebrate. The Lord fought that battle for me, and it made me think then that we face many battles in life. You know, maybe that's a good illustration. Maybe it isn't. But it tells us that we fight various battles every day. And as we face these different battles, at times we can easily become defeated or, or feel that way or overwhelmed or stressed. But I was reminded we don't have to become stressed and overwhelmed and defeated. And the reason why is because our Lord God will fight that battle for us if we just let him. I mean, the theme of the message today is really quite simple. That the Lord is fully capable of fighting your battles for you. That's the theme of the message. That's a simple little theme. But yet we get this reminder today because we're constantly fighting battles in life of various kinds. Now to help us then, we're going to go to 2 Chronicles 20. We're going to read about a story, an account with Jehoshaphat, as he finds himself truly in a battle. I mean, he's in a fix. He's in a predicament. He's in a real battle with what we'll identify as the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meunites. But he prays to the Lord and then gives the Lord the battle. Now, the text is a little more lengthy than typically we have. It's going to be 22 verses, so bear with me as we read it. But it's a great story to help us be, to illustrate how we can be like Jehoshaphat and give the battle to the Lord. So stand with me this morning as we land now in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You may have already found it, or may just read along with me as we read the text together, and you may see it behind me. But let's read chapter 20, 2 Chronicles. Again, the first 22 verses is all we have for this morning of this particular chapter. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazan, Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. 
From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God, our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham your friend? And they have lived in it, and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear it and say, Now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you have not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord, with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benael, son of Jeuel, son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, it will come up by the ascent of Ziv. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not stand to fight in the battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with the face to the ground. And all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel with a very loud voice, and rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Koah. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in the holy attire as they were before the army. And said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. But Father, Lord, we thank you for the reading today, a bit more lengthy than normal, Lord, but still, we thank you for this reading and this story of Jehoshaphat and how you helped him with his battle. Lord, today we want to recognize that we also have various battles in life. We pray, Lord, you begin to speak to us as we fight these battles. Let us learn from the text, Lord, and then apply that to our lives. Today, Lord, let us be prepared to any battle that we're facing here today. Be prepared to just hand it to you. 
and to beg you, Lord, and to ask you to fight that battle for us. We can believe in you, Lord. You help us. You're available. So today, Lord, let's be thankful for what you shall do here for us today. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's quite an extended reading to what we normally have, 22 verses in length. Sometimes we just have five or six. So yes, it's about four or six times more likely or more lengthy than normal. But we have here an account of the king of Judah. His name is Jehoshaphat, who rightly turns to God for intervention. Before we connect then the ob this uh, observation to modern day of what happened with Jehoshaphat, let us learn a few things about him, about Jehoshaphat himself. First of all, notice that Jehoshaphat was made king of Judah in 873 B.C. The account tells us, not in a reading that we have today, but later in verse 31, it tells us that he was 35 years old when he became king of Judah, and it also tells us he reigned in Judah for 25 years. But perhaps what we should interject about Jehoshaphat is that he was not a king who always went about making the right decisions. In chapter 18, before obviously the chapter 20 that we have read today, we learned that Jehoshaphat made an alliance with King Ahab of Israel and because he wanted to make sure that he helped his, uh, an alliance he had with Ahab. It happened to be that uh, Ahab had become close to him through marriage of his son with Ahab's daughter. But then Ahab persuaded King Jehoshaphat to actually join Israel in a campaign against the Arameans in Ramoth Gilead. Now the battle was not Jehoshaphat's himself. It belonged to Ahab. But one then that Jehoshaphat yielded to comply to be able to help the king. If you go back and read chapter 18 later, you discover that the prophet Micaiah actually told King Ahab, with Jehoshaphat was in earshot and listening, that he, Ahab, would be defeated if he went into this battle. That he'd meet his death. But Ahab hated Micaiah the prophet. And then went forth to the battle anyway. And convinced Jehoshaphat to dress as a king, while Ahab himself just dressed as a common person. So it looked like Jehoshaphat was a king and Ahab was just a common person. It resulted then in Arameans charging against Jehoshaphat because he looks like the king. Now surprisingly, Jehoshaphat begins to get scared and fears for his life. He calls upon the Lord who protects him. And meanwhile, while that's happening, Micaiah had predicted that, that Ahab would die, so a random arrow is shot his way and kills him. And you may hear that story and say, okay, that's chapter 18. What does that have to do with our text today in chapter 20? Well, what it helps us do is establish the context. Because essentially, we have to know a little bit about the history of Jehoshaphat to understand what is happening now. Because in this chapter, in verses 1 and 2, you find Jehoshaphat is now in another crisis. An army is marching toward him, toward Jerusalem. It's the coalition, as you see in verses 1 and 2, of the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Meonites, who are marching toward and against Judah. And it happens to be then there within striking distance. Jehoshaphat learns that they have a great host that's already gathered at Hazael and Tamar, on the west shore of the Dead Sea, and would soon then be in Jerusalem. 
Now, as Sheila and I went to Israel many years ago, we actually stood in this particular area. The area then lies between Gedi and the Dead Sea in Tekoa, which is 10 miles south of Jerusalem and about 17 miles northwest of Gedi itself. It's a pass, if you will, that leads from the valley of the Dead Sea towards Jerusalem. And the thing that's remarkable about it is that this pass, though, is hidden from anyone to be able to see their armies coming towards them. So that's what's happening as Jehoshaphat learns the armies coming. They're hidden, and he learns about it, and he's worried. He's concerned. So then as Jehoshaphat learns the army is advancing, a coalition of many, he prayed calling upon God to deliver Judah from his promises that he made to Abraham. Now, we stop there for a moment and observe that this is highly significant, that Jehoshaphat takes a moment to pray in public to God is highly significant because it was not common for kings at that particular day to take an opportunity to pray in public. Of course, Israel in his past has had many kings that actually did pray in public. For example, David. David prayed in in public many different times, and his prayers were genuine. Solomon later dedicated a temple, and it was as well. Even Josiah was a king that led the people in renewal of the covenant with God. So there has been kings in Israeli history that was sincere and genuine with their prayer. So it happened to be that the king would pray, but not always would it be meaningful. I mean, everyone acknowledged that the king, was known as God's anointed one, representing God's leadership. That was their thought. There was even a prominent place within the temple that the king would often stand. However, despite his role, the king's actions were merely ceremonial and not genuine, typically. They were just for show, not sincere or genuine at all. But here is something exceptional. Because now Jehoshaphat takes a page from the book of of David or Solomon or that of Josiah and offers a public prayer with all the genuineness and sincerity that he could possibly muster. And we interject that here because we have an application, a side note, if you will, what happens here in the text. It pertains to Jehoshaphat rising to the occasion and having this prayer. And the, the question now and thought is, what is the possibility? of the actually happening in our country or our world today. That a leader, a government leader, or even a business leader would take a time out and come in public and pray for the crisis that they're in. I mean, I don't really desire a lot of times to mix politics and faith, but here's a question we're considering. And I'm not merely asking a question really based upon government leaders, which is a question itself, but also business leaders. And what I'm asking, if they would stop, when they start to come into crisis, Jehoshaphat is in a real crisis now. He had that mixed up time with Ahab. He got past that. Now he's in another crisis. The army is going and advancing towards him, and they're in this hidden valley. So he's worried about what shall happen when they get closer and closer to Jerusalem. He, no doubt, is in a crisis, and he turns to God. And he has a wonderful prayer as we'll dissect here in a little bit, and then he prays to God. But it asks and begs the question, if our leaders, government or business, at the moment they're in a crisis, would stop and pray, what would it look like? You know, once I served as a chaplain, a marketplace chaplain, 
ministries, they allow you then, if you're a chaplain for Marketplace Ministries, they sign businesses that will allow you then, as a chaplain to go in their business wherever and to talk to people, to help them, to comfort them, and offer condolences on things that just occur in their life. It was a wonderful little ministry to help people through certain situations that may not get a chance to go to church. We were just there in the, in the business to help them through certain things. And it happened to be that they would always ask the chaplain to come on the first Thursday of each month of May because that is a national day of prayer. So we would gladly go and lead the business into the national day of prayer. But one thing I noticed is that as we come together as a chaplain to lead the people in the national day of prayer, that the top leaders of the company were not there. They would typically not be present. I mean, it happens at lunchtime. They would go on to lunch, and then several people who, you know, somewhat has some Christianity or some religion would gather for the National Day of Prayer, but you would see that most important people of the business, the, the, uh, the plant manager and some others, would be gone. They would leave and go about their business, not participate in the gathering for National Day of Prayer. And that was interesting. But I also noticed that wasn't the case in every part. Because in a particular plant I was assigned to, there was one section of the plant that recognized, seemingly recognized the power of prayer and would always assemble. In fact, they had me come every Monday morning at 7 o'clock and leave their meeting in prayer. And they were noticeably different. They were like Jehoshaphat in this text. They recognized the power of prayer. And they believed in the fact that God intervenes and hears our prayers. But notably, so few do. And especially people who are in leadership positions. So again, the question for just entertainment for a moment is, what would it look like in our country if our leaders truly prayed in public during the moment of crisis before God and led the people? And I think we all know the answer. What would our country look like? The country would look remarkably different than it does today. There's all kinds of political maneuvering of how to make America great again. You hear that all the time. And I'm no politician and don't even want to be. But I believe the way, the sure way, to make America great again is to put God first and to pray. That's the sure way to get America great again. Only if our leaders would take the opportunity, like Jehoshaphat, to pray in public with sincerity and genuineness. Go back to the text. Soapbox back. Notice in verse 3, we go back to verses 3 through 6. Then in verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid. He set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed the fast throughout all of Judah. And the various words are used here among different translations of Jehoshaphat's emotion in verse 3. King James Version say that he was fearful or he feared. The one we read from, the ESV says afraid, as well as the NIV. The New Living Translation just says his emotion was terror. But note the reaction of Jehoshaphat. Regardless of translation, they're all the same. His reaction when he gets nervous, when he gets fearful, when he gets afraid, when he has terror here of the advancing army, all translations said his immediate reaction then was to fast and to pray. Of course, it makes sense to pray. But some people ask, well, why fast? One commentary answered, said, when the nation was faced with disaster, 
Jehoshaphat called upon the people to get serious with God by going without food or fasting for a designated time. By separating themselves from the daily routine of food preparation and eating, they could devote the extra time to considering their sin and praying to God for help. Basically, to fast or do without something allows a person to focus. For Judah, hunger pains would reinforce their remorse, their regret, their sorrow, and remind them of their weaknesses and of their dependency they should have upon God. And for a matter of fact, fasting can still be helpful today as we, as Christians, seek God in certain situations. But observe then that not only did he fast, he prayed. In verses 5 through 12, particularly 6 through 12, you see the prayer. Jehoshaphat stood in a redecorated center, court, praying for the nation, appealing to promises of God, the glory, and the reputation of God which were at stake since he was identified with Judah. Notice the prayer in verses 6 through 12. Notice in verse 6, he prayed and acknowledged God's sovereignty. In verse 7, he acknowledged God's covenant. In verse 8 and 9, he acknowledged God's presence, God's goodness in verse 10, God's possession in verse 11, and the utter dependence on him in verse 12. Perhaps we should note Jehoshaphat's prayer has several essential ingredients. Number one, he committed his situation to God, acknowledging that only God could save him and the nation. Secondly, he sought God's favor because of the people were God's people. Thirdly, he acknowledged God's sovereignty. God is in control over the entire situation. Fourthly, he praised God's glory and took comfort in his promises. And then finally, he professed complete dependence on God, not himself, or deliverance. That drives us to a point which I'm trying to make, that through fasting and through praying, Jehoshaphat focused entirely on God's power rather than his own. Through fasting and praying, he focused entirely on God's power rather than his own. And that's something that we should do as well anytime we're in a battle. Focus on God's power rather than our own. We can't fight those battles, but God truly can. And notice in the verse 15, the story continues. After Jehoshaphat had led the nation in fasting and prayer, the enemy now begins to bear down upon them. As the enemy is getting closer and closer, notice in verse 15, a spokesman for God, Jehaziel is his name, made a cry that said, Do not be afraid, for the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is not yours, but God's. Now try to picture the best as you can the situation that Jehoshaphat finds himself. Now, he has not sincerely been praying for quite some time. He doesn't make that something of an everyday habit. He'll make, I mean, he'll stand in public and pray, but with not any kind of sincerity at all. And now he sees the enemies bearing down upon him. So he makes a sincere prayer. He recognizes the power of God to save the nation, to save himself. And all of a sudden now a guy named Jehaziel comes up and says, look, dude, don't, don't be afraid. Do not be dismayed. This battle is not yours but God's. I mean, can you imagine that happening? The enemy's approaching. 
The footsteps are getting louder and louder. The voices are getting calling out. And then God all of a sudden sends a messenger, his word, through Jehaziel. It says, be not afraid. The battle is God's. I mean, what joy must have went through Jehoshaphat. It's like, yes, Lord, you come to rescue me. I don't have to fight this battle. You will do it. Notice in verse 17, Jehaziel instructs him then, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Verse 15 and verse 17. Both inform the people, fasting and praying, that God has heard your voice. God has heard your prayer. He told them twice, verse 15 and 17, twice. He says, be not afraid, be not dismayed. He essentially tells them, fear not, for the Lord will fight the battle for you. And in the verses that follow, we see that the men and women of Judah place themselves in front of the army. And what do they do? They sing. Verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. All Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites, Kohathites, Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Verse 20, notice it says, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Verse 21, sing to the Lord and praise him. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And verse 22, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord sent an ambush against the men. What did they have to do? They just had to sing and pray and fast and then worship God. God fought the battle for them. He won the battle for them. It's the victory provided only by the Almighty God. That's what happens in the account of Jehoshaphat. It's a wonderful story of God fighting the battle for his people. But notably, this is not the only place in Scripture, in the Bible, which you can find God fighting battles for his people. A similar situation occurs in the popular account of David and Goliath. Now, you know the story well. You know David and Goliath. You've probably heard it for many years. You know, David is a small, ruddy boy. He's a shepherd. He's a keeper of the sheep. You know, he has slayed lion and bear and whatever they come out, you know, to be able to protect the sheep. He's a protector provider. And now he goes against Goliath, who's a giant among men. He's like standing nine foot nine. In the time that we studied that with our little middle school age group, I would use Jackson as David and Micah as Goliath to demonstrate the difference that exists between the two. But that's, there, there's a noticeable difference between David and Goliath. Goliath is nine foot nine, covered with heavy armor. He's carrying a massive spear and sword. But nonetheless, David stands ground against the Philistine and tells him in 1 Samuel 17, You come to me. With a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. 
But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, so that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. Here it comes, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. It's a similar wording. The Lord fought that battle. I mean, David was a participant. David was the instrument. But the battle was the Lord's. And rightly so. We could spend several more minutes reviewing Scripture and reminding us the battle is God's. In any and every situation, there's countless examples in Scripture. But for the sake of time, let's just leap into the question for application. I mean, how does it relate to you and me? How does it relate to us in our life? And we have to ask the question, then, are you currently in a battle? Are you fighting an enemy? Is something happening in your life in which you feel like you're in a constant battle each and every day? Or do you ever become weary or tired of fighting the daily battles in life? And notice then that we, every one of us face them. Every one of us face some sort of battle. As we fight the life's battles, as mentioned earlier, we can get irritated, frustrated, exhausted, depressed, and much more. I mean, notably, the battles we face is a wide assortment of things, such as this, financial concerns. There's a great battle we have sometimes when things get tight, when we're running out of money. I mean, we're short on funds. The hot water heater has gone out. How will we ever be able to have hot water again? How can we be able to pay for a replacement of a hot water heater? It's a real-life situation. Actually occurred to Sheila and I was living in Texas. I had been removed as a plant manager, no longer in charge of the plant which I was assigned. And although we shouldn't have, we were actually in a desperate situation at the time because we were living probably above our means and then living from pay, paycheck to paycheck. So when the position was removed and the salary no longer was there, then we were in a desperate situation. And sure enough, the hot water heater went out, flooded the house. So now we have carpet that's wet. If all these different things that's happening, we've got to replace the hot water heater, and we're tied on funds. We're in a crisis. We're in a situation where we feel like we're fighting the battle over finances. Maybe it's not the financial battle that you're fighting. Maybe the battle that you're fighting in life is health-related. I mean, as you're aware, many people in our church family has been a situation in which we've had a lot of prayer and they're facing the battle in life with some health concerns. We've had cancer. Nora, Dan, Ray, and even Mac McDuffie, who's on our prayer list. I mean, there's many different more still fighting that battle of cancer. Or we've had people who've had surgery. Tom, Brian's had his surgery. Bill, Carly, a bunch of people have all faced surgery. There's blood pressure cancer. I mean, there's all kinds of different health matter that we have in our family here in which we're fighting that particular battle. Of course, there are also other battles we face in life. It may not be financial. It may not be health. It may be things like depression or fatigue, tiredness, addiction. There's alcohol or drugs or even pornography. Then there's other battles that sometimes just rise to the occasion that we fight, like family conflicts, children. You ever had a battle with your children? 
Yeah. Or sometimes your parents or your brothers or your sisters. Teachers battle their students. We know that students battle the bus driver. And there's even marital issues that sometimes happen where there's conflict. And there's battles, even a marriage. When you stop and think about it, there are countless battles that all of us face every day in life. We face it, we make it our own, and we fight and fight and fight. But is it our battle? In life, we tend to make it our battle. But as Christians, we need to recognize it is not truly our battle to fight. In all these different scenarios, we don't actually have to fight that battle. As Christians, we're blessed to let the Lord fight the battle for us. All we have to do is give it to him, which seems to be the hard part for us. Just to rid it and give it to him. Give it to him no matter what it is. Whether it's finances, or health, relation conflicts, or addiction, whatever it is, just let him fight it. Give it to him. Because the Lord is fully capable of fighting your battles for you. He's fully capable of fighting any battle you have in life for you. You just have to give it to him. As you hear that, perhaps you're saying, okay, okay. But we're not in the actual battle in our life like Jehoshaphat or like David or others. We're not real soldiers. If that's what you're thinking to that, I would say this. That we may not fight an enemy army, but every day we battle temptation. Certain pressure in life. And rulers of the unseen world who want us to rebel against God. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are in a battle. If you've never faced any other battle in life, but you have, you may be acknowledging that now. You may be even in a battle at this particular moment. You're always in a battle with the enemy. And you need to give that to the Lord. And he'll fight that battle for you. Because remember, as believers, we have God's Spirit in us. If we ask God for help when we face struggles and battles, God will fight for us. And God always triumphs. So don't grow weary. Don't get frustrated. Don't become overwhelmed with the daily battles of life. Let God fight the battle for you. How do we let God fight our battle for us? Well, first, realize the battle's not ours, but God's. It's the message. That's what we're talking about. The battle's not yours, but God's. Secondly, recognize your human limitations that you have. We are not really empowered. We like to think that we are. and We like to think we're in control, but we're not. So recognize the human limitations. And allow God's strength to work through our fears that we'll have when we're in a battle, and certain weaknesses. And then thirdly, just make sure we're pursuing God's interests and not our own selfish desires. You know, it almost sounds too simple. How to let God fight for us? Recognize it's not our battle but His. Recognize our human weaknesses. Work through our fears. And make sure we're pursuing God's interests, not ours. 
As the psalmist declares in 46.1, God is a very present help in trouble. He will not abandon you. He will fight for you. Let God have your battle. God always wins. Finally, I'll leave you with this. What does it mean that the battle is not yours, it's the Lord's? Here's what it means. It's a posture of hope. Believing and taking God at his word, no matter what the reports or circumstances look like. It can look really bleak at times. But God is still with you. He'll still take that battle and fight it. He says, as you center yourself, your thoughts, your faith, and your hopes upon him, he will lead you concerning what to do, just as he led King Jehoshaphat in our story. I mean, so often in life, we feel like we truly are a soldier or a warrior fighting a battle. We enter somehow a battlefield every day. And it seems to be on a daily basis we fight certain battles. And after fighting those battles, we can get worn, torn from engaging that war. But today, I beg you to give that battle to the Lord. Let him fight it for you. And you become victorious. Father, Lord, thank you for the simple message today, Lord. It reminds us of something that maybe we need today. Because we do recognize, Lord, maybe we hadn't thought about before we got here. But now we recognize that we do face these certain battles. And sometimes, Lord, it feels like we're in a war. So today, Lord, I pray for all of us, collectively together, that we recognize that the battle we have, that we're fighting on our own strength, on our own power is not something we need to fight. We can allow you, Lord, to fight that battle for us on your power, your might, your strength. And we give it to you and walk away. And we shall be free and victorious. So, Lord, we thank you for how this message reminds us of that today. And today, Lord, we prepare ourselves to give you your battle and let you fight. Thank you, Lord, for taking it for for being there for us. And thank you for your son, Jesus, who actually fought that battle for us. In his name we pray. Amen.